0: The Chronicles of Clovis by Saki Read by Richard Crowest The Remoulding of Groby Linton A man is known by the company he keeps. In the morning room of his sister-in-law's house, Groby Linton fidgeted away the passing minutes with the demure restlessness of advanced middle age about a quarter of an hour would have to elapse before it would be time to say his good-byes and make his way across the village green to the station with a selected escort of nephews and nieces he was a good-natured kindly dispositioned man and in theory he was delighted to pay periodical visits to the wife and children of his dead brother william in practice he infinitely preferred the comfort and seclusion of his own house and garden and the companionship of his books and his parrot to these rather meaningless and tiresome incursions into a family circle with which he had little in common it was not so much the spur of his own conscience that drove him to make the occasional short journey by rail to visit his relatives as an obedient concession to the more insistent but vicarious conscience of his brother colonel john who was apt to accuse him of neglecting poor old william's family Groby usually forgot or ignored the existence of his neighbour kinsfolk until such time as he was threatened with a visit from the Colonel, when he would put matters straight by a hurried pilgrimage across the few miles of intervening country to renew his acquaintance with the young people and assume a kindly, if rather forced, interest in the well-being of his sister-in-law. On this occasion he had cut matters so fine between the timing of his exculpatory visit and the coming of Colonel John that he would scarcely be home before the latter was due to arrive. "'Anyhow, Groby had got it over, and six or seven months might decently elapse "'before he need again sacrifice his comforts and inclinations on the altar of family sociability. "'He was inclined to be distinctly cheerful as he hopped about the room, "'picking up first one object and then another, and subjecting each to a brief bird-like scrutiny. "'Presently his cheerful listlessness changed sharply to an attitude of vexed attention.' In a scrapbook of drawings and caricatures belonging to one of his nephews, he had come across an unkindly clever sketch of himself and his parrot, solemnly confronting each other in postures of ridiculous gravity and repose, and bearing a likeness to one another that the artist had done his utmost to accentuate. After the first flush of annoyance had passed away, Groby laughed good-naturedly, and admitted to himself the cleverness of the drawing. And then the feeling of resentment repossessed him— A resentment not against the caricaturist who had embodied the idea in pen and ink, but against the possible truth that the idea represented. Was it really the case that people grew in time to resemble the animals they kept as pets, and had he unconsciously become more and more like the comically solemn bird that was his constant companion? Groby was unusually silent as he walked to the train with his escort of chattering nephews and nieces, "'and during the short railway journey his mind was more and more possessed with an introspective conviction "'that he had gradually settled down into a sort of parrot-like existence. "'What, after all, did his daily routine amount to but a sedate meandering and pecking and perching "'in his garden, among his fruit-trees, in his wicker chair on the lawn, or by the fireside in his library?' And what was the sum total of his conversation with chance-encountered neighbours? "'Quite a spring day, isn't it? "'It looks as though we should have some rain. "'Glad to see you about again. "'You must take care of yourself. "'How the young folks shoot up, don't they?' Strings of stupid, inevitable, perfunctory remarks came to his mind, remarks that were certainly not the mental exchange of human intelligences, but mere, empty parrot-talk. "'one might really just as well salute one's acquaintances with "'Pretty Polly, Puss-Puss, Meow!' "'Groby began to fume against the picture of himself as a foolish feathered fowl "'which his nephew's sketch had first suggested, "'and which his own accusing imagination was filling in with such unflattering detail. "'I'll give the beastly bird away,' he said resentfully, "'though he knew at the same time that he would do no such thing.' It would look so absurd after all the years that he had kept the parrot and made much of it suddenly to try and find it a new home. "'Has my brother arrived?' he asked of the stable-boy who had come with the pony-carriage to meet him. "'Yes, sir. Came down by the 2.15. Your parrot's dead.' The boy made the latter announcement with the relish which his class finds in proclaiming a catastrophe. "'My parrot dead?' said Groby. "'What caused its death?' "'The Ipe!' "'said the boy briefly. "'The Ipe?' queried Groby. "'Whatever's that?' "'The Ipe what the Colonel brought down with him,' "'came the rather alarming answer. "'Do you mean to say my brother is ill?' "'asked Groby. "'Is it something infectious?' "'The Colonel's so well as ever he was,' said the boy, "'and as no further explanation was forthcoming, "'Groby had to possess himself in mystified patience "'till he had reached home. "'His brother was waiting for him at the hall door.' "'Have you heard about the parrot?' he asked at once. "'Pon my soul, I'm awfully sorry. "'The moment he saw the monkey I'd brought down as a surprise for you, "'he squawked out, "'Rats to you, sir,' "'and the blessed monkey made one spring at him, "'got him by the neck, and whirled him round like a rattle. "'He was as dead as mutton by the time I'd got him out of the little beggar's paws. "'Always been such a friendly little beast, the monkey has, "'should never have thought he'd got it in him to see red like that. "'Can't tell you how sorry I feel about it. "'And now, of course, you'll hate the sight of the monkey.' "'Not at all,' said Groby sincerely. "'A few hours earlier the tragic end which had befallen his parrot "'would have presented itself to him as a calamity, "'and now it arrived almost as a polite attention on the part of the Fates.' "'The bird was getting old, you know,' he went on, "'in explanation of his obvious lack of decent regret at the loss of his pet. "'I was really beginning to wonder if it was an unmixed kindness "'to let him go on living till he succumbed to old age. "'What a charming little monkey!' he added, when he was introduced to the culprit. The newcomer was a small, long-tailed monkey from the Western Hemisphere, with a gentle, half-shy, half-trusting manner that instantly captured Groby's confidence. A student of Simian character might have seen in the fitful red light in its eyes some indication of the underlying temper which the parrot had so rashly put to the test with such dramatic consequences for itself. And the servants, who had come to regard the defunct bird as a regular member of the household and one who gave really very little trouble, were scandalised to find his bloodthirsty aggressor installed in his place as an honoured domestic pet. A nasty, even hype, what don't never say nothing sensible and cheerful, same as poor Polly did, was the unfavourable verdict of the kitchen quarters. One Sunday morning, some twelve or fourteen months after the visit of Colonel John and the Parrot tragedy, Miss Wepley sat decorously in her pew in the parish church, immediately in front of that occupied by Groby Lincoln. She was, comparatively speaking, a newcomer in the neighbourhood, and was not personally acquainted with her fellow worshipper in the seat behind, but for the past two years the Sunday morning service had brought them regularly within each other's sphere of consciousness. Without having paid particular attention to the subject, she could probably have given a correct rendering of the way in which he pronounced certain words occurring in the responses, while he was well aware of the trivial fact that, in addition to her prayer-book and handkerchief, a small paper packet of throat lozenges always reposed on the seat beside her. Miss Wepley rarely had recourse to her lozenges, but in case she should be taken with a fit of coughing, she wished to have the emergency duly provided for. On this particular Sunday the lozenges occasioned an unusual diversion in the even tenor of her devotions, far more disturbing to her personally than a prolonged attack of coughing would have been. As she rose to take part in the singing of the first hymn, she fancied that she saw the hand of her neighbour, who was alone in the pew behind her, make a furtive downward grab at the packet lying on the seat. On turning sharply round she found that the packet had certainly disappeared but Mr. Linton was, to all outward seeming, serenely intent on his hymn-book. No amount of interrogatory glaring on the part of the despoiled lady could bring the least shade of conscious guilt to his face. "'Worths was to follow,' as she remarked afterwards to a scandalised audience of friends and acquaintances. "'I had scarcely knelt in prayer when a lozenge, one of my lozenges, came whizzing into the pew just under my nose.' "'I turned round and stared, but Mr. Linkton had his eyes closed "'and his lips moving as though engaged in prayer. "'The moment I resumed my devotions, another lozenge came rattling in, "'and then another. "'I took no notice for a while, and then turned round suddenly "'just as the dreadful man was about to flip another one at me. "'He hastily pretended to be turning over the leaves of his book, "'but I was not to be taken in that time. "'He saw that he had been discovered, and no more lozenges came.' "'Of course I have changed my pew.' "'No gentleman would have acted in such a disgraceful manner,' said one of her listeners. "'And yet Mr. Linton used to be so respected by everybody. "'He seems to have behaved like a little ill-bred schoolboy.' "'He behaved like a monkey,' said Miss Wepley. "'Her unfavourable verdict was echoed in other quarters about the same time.' Groby Lincoln had never been a hero in the eyes of his personal retainers but he had shared the approval accorded to his defunct parrot as a cheerful well-dispositioned body who gave no particular trouble of late months however this character would hardly have been endorsed by the members of his domestic establishment The stolid stable-boy who had first announced to him the tragic end of his feathered pet was one of the first to give voice to the murmurs of disapproval, which became rampant and general in the servants' quarters, and he had fairly substantial grounds for his disaffection. In a burst of hot summer weather he had obtained permission to bathe in a modest-sized pond in the orchard, and thither one afternoon Groby had bent his steps, attracted by loud imprecations of anger mingled with the shriller chattering of monkey-language. "'He beheld his plump, diminutive servitor, clad only in a waistcoat and a pair of socks, "'storming ineffectually at the monkey, which was seated on a low branch of an apple-tree, "'abstractedly fingering the remainder of the boy's outfit, which he had removed just out of his reach. "'The Ipe's been and took my clothes!' whined the boy, with the passion of his kind for explaining the obvious. His incomplete toilet effect rather embarrassed him, but he hailed the arrival of Groby with relief, as promising moral and material support in his efforts to get back his raided garments. The monkey had ceased its defiant jabbering, and, doubtless with a little coaxing from its master, it would hand back the plunder. "'If I lift you up,' suggested Groby, you will just be able to reach the clothes.' The boy agreed, and Groby clutched him firmly by the waistcoat, which was about all there was to catch hold of, and lifted him clear of the ground. Then, with a deft swing, he sent him crashing into a clump of tall nettles, which closed receptively round him. The victim had not been brought up in a school which teaches one to repress one's emotions. If a fox had attempted to gnaw at his vitals, he would have flown to complain to the nearest hunt committee, rather than have affected an attitude of stoical indifference on this occasion the volume of sound which he produced under the stimulus of pain and rage and astonishment was generous and sustained but above his bellowings he could distinctly hear the triumphant chattering of his enemy in the tree and a peal of shrill laughter from groby When the boy had finished an improvised St Vitus caracol, which would have brought him fame on the boards of the Coliseum, and which indeed met with ready appreciation and applause from the retreating figure of Groby Linton, he found that the monkey had also discreetly retired, while his clothes were scattered on the grass at the foot of the tree. "'Them's two-ipes, that's what they be,' he muttered angrily, and if his judgment was severe, at least he spoke under the sting of considerable provocation.' It was a week or two later that the parlour-maid gave notice, having been terrified almost to tears by an outbreak of sudden temper on the part of the master and some underdone cutlets. "'He gnashed his teeth at me! He did really!' she informed a sympathetic kitchen audience. "'I'd like to see him talk to me like that, I would,' said the cook defiantly, but her cooking from that moment showed a marked improvement.' It was seldom that Groby Linton so far detached himself from his accustomed habits as to go and form one of a house-party, and he was not a little piqued that Mrs. Glenduff should have stowed him away in the musty old Georgian wing of the house, in the next room, moreover, to Leonard Spabink, the eminent pianist. "'He plays list like an angel,' had been the hostess's enthusiastic testimonial. "'He may play him like a trout, for all I care,' "'had been Groby's mental comment. "'But I wouldn't mind betting that he snores. "'He's just the sort and shape that would. "'And if I hear him snoring through those ridiculous thin-panelled walls, "'there'll be trouble.' "'He did. "'And there was.' "'Groby stood it for about two and a quarter minutes, "'and then made his way through the corridor into Spabbink's room.' Under Groby's vigorous measures the musician's flabby, redundant figure sat up in bewildered semi-consciousness, like an ice-cream that has been taught to beg. Groby prodded him into complete wakefulness, and then the pettish, self-satisfied pianist fairly lost his temper and slapped his domineering visitant on the hand. In another moment Spabink was being nearly stifled and very effectually gagged by a pillowcase tightly bound round his head, while his plump pyjamaed limbs were hauled out of bed and smacked, pinched, kicked and bumped in a catch as catch can progress across the floor towards the flat shallow bath in whose utterly inadequate depths Groby perseveringly strove to drown him. For a few moments the room was almost in darkness, a groby's candle had overturned in an early stage of the scuffle, and its flicker scarcely reached to the spot where splashing, smacks, muffled cries and splutterings, and a chatter of ape-like rage told of the struggle that was being waged round the shores of the bath. A few instants later the one-sided combat was brightly lit up by the flare of blazing curtains and rapidly kindling panelling. When the hastily aroused members of the house-party stampeded out onto the lawn, the Georgian wing was well alight, and belching forth masses of smoke, but some moments elapsed before Groby appeared, with the half-drowned pianist in his arms, having just bethought him of the superior drowning facilities offered by the pond at the bottom of the lawn. The cool night air sobered his rage, and when he found that he was innocently acclaimed as the heroic rescuer of poor Leonard Spabbink, and loudly commended for his presence of mind in tying a wet cloth round his head to protect him from smoke-suffocation, he accepted the situation, and subsequently gave a graphic account of his finding the musician asleep with an overturned candle by his side, and the conflagration well started. Spabink gave his version some days later, when he had partially recovered from the shock of his midnight castigation and immersion— but the gentle, pitying smiles and evasive comments with which his story was greeted warned him that the public ear was not at his disposal. He refused, however, to attend the ceremonial presentation of the Royal Humane Society's life-saving medal. It was about this time that Groby's pet monkey fell a victim to the disease which attacks so many of its kind when brought under the influence of a northern climate. Its master appeared to be profoundly affected by its loss, and never quite recovered the level of spirits that he had recently attained. In company with the tortoise, which Colonel John presented to him on his last visit, he potters about his lawn and kitchen garden, with none of his erstwhile sprightliness, and his nephews and nieces are fairly well justified in alluding to him as Old Uncle Groby. (laughs) Clovis Sangrail will return in Beasts and Super Beasts by Saki, read by Richard Crowest, soon.